All right, today is Friday the 20th, and we're doing a very special podcast as an introduction to the podcast I'm going to have next week, Tuesday, where attorney Karen Mueller is going to be on to discuss the Supreme Court case. And I'm doing this on the Friday beforehand so that it's um, not just a teaser, but I wanted to give my perspective of the case as an introduction to Karen coming on next Tuesday. So just a little bit of background. John Zinksheim walked into a hospital in Wisconsin that was part of the Aurora Healthcare System on September 19th of 21. He tested positive for COVID. And in minutes, the doctor told him he was going to die. Uh, the doctor immediately placed him on remdesivir and baricitinib. And the power of attorney, which was John's nephew, Alan Gall, demanded that he be taken off these drugs. He requested ivermectin and high-dose vitamin C via an IV, and the hospital refused and administered remdesivir again. He was put on a ventilator on October 3rd and deteriorated quickly, so much so that the hospice team encouraged the family to pull the plug because there's nothing they could do. The family refused to give up and sought the legal system to try to obtain ivermectin for John through a series of unbelievable God-inspired events. John was secretly given ivermectin and survived the NIH protocol in spite of spending 10 months in the hospital with 100 days on a ventilator. The Circuit Court heard this case on October 12th of 2021 and granted the request of the family. Unbelievably, the hospital, Aurora, appealed that decision and won. And that's why the Supreme Court heard this case on January 17th, just three days ago. What this case is about is that the power of attorney, so Alan Gall in this case, by state statute, was simply implementing the rights that he had to protect his Uncle John. And state statute 155.30 specifically says, you have the right to make decisions about your health care. No health care may be given to you over your objection, and necessary health care may not be stopped or withheld if you object. So what's at stake here? Does a patient's right to life trump a doctor's desire to implement a standard of care not agreed to by the patient? This is this is a big time case. It in it influences the care of everybody in Wisconsin, of course, but it will set a precedent uh, nationwide. So I'm going to be calling for three different clips. Don's going to to put, and I'm going to comment on those clips. The first one I want you to have the perspective of. Those who live by the law, die by it, have never been able to contract morality since the beginning of time. So, Don, can you play the first clip? Counsel, um, this is a case where we're reviewing a decision of the trial court. You know, we're not looking afresh at the laws to the uh, such an order. Um, and uh, I didn't see anything in the trial court citing any um, actual law that would support the um, decision in this case. Um, and, uh, you know, traditionally, if you don't cite the law, if you don't make a legal argument for why the, um, for why you're going to issue some sort of injunction, you've erroneously exercised your uh, discretion. Um, 
So uh, my question to you, um, at least one of my questions to you, is uh, what law did the trial court actually um, cite in support of its argument that there was a reasonable likelihood of success on the merits? Thank you for the question, Justice Hagedorn. The court went through the different elements that are required for an emergency TRO. Uh, They did not uh, memorialize it in writing, but they went through it um, uh, a couple of different times with attorney Ralph Larigo. First of all, there was the irreparable harm that would be caused without an order. Yeah, I I mean, there's obviously four different factors, right, for a temporary injunction. Irreparable harm is its own thing. I know there's arguments about status quo. I'm going to put all those aside for now. Okay. One of the requirements in order to issue a temporary injunction needs to be a reasonable likelihood of success in the merits. The merits has to be some legal authority for a court to intervene and issue an order mandating some action. The trial court, in my reading, did not cite any actual law to support its order. Um, even, even um, I mean, the, the, the Court of Appeals, you know, rested its decision largely on that grounds. Even the dissent didn't point to any actual law that was cited. Um, and so, um, or, or at least relied upon to show why there's a reasonable likelihood of success in the merits. So just on the reasonable likelihood of success in the merits, what law was cited by the trial court to give it authority to or to issue this order? The trial court did not identify a specific law. I believe it was relying on its inherent powers because of the exigent circumstances of this case and the dire situation that we believe that John Zingzheim was in in that particular case. What you're asking us to do, if I'm asking you what the rule is, what I'm hearing you say is... We want you to rule that even though the circuit court did not cite any law, uh, we want you to disregard that in your ruling, Supreme Court, and we want you to say that as long as an individual has a power of attorney and is asking for principle, they can come in and ask for anything. They can ask for a treatment such as ivermectin that has not been approved to treat COVID. They could ask for any type of medicine in any type of situation uh, as long as the uh, power of attorney has been signed. Is that what you're asking us to do here? No, that is not what I'm asking you to do. Clearly, um, we had proven uh, to the court that there was irreparable harm that would be caused and that there was no other adequate remedy at law and that in order to maintain the status quo, which uh, we How believe... How do you know the, that you prove that to the circuit court? What finding did the court make regarding irreparable harm? Regarding the irreparable harm, uh, the court relied on Alan Gall's statements as the health care power of attorney, and in his affidavit, uh, which you can find at page... I'm not four, asking no- about the affidavit. I'm asking what did the judge say? What, what, what factors? How do we know the judge considered certain factors, what find, what, as a circuit court judge, right? I was a circuit court judge. Mm-hmm. And you say, I've listened mm-hmm. to all the testimony and I'm making mm-hmm. the following findings. And then you talk about the findings that you're made, that you are making based on the testimony that you've listened to or the evidence that has been submitted. What findings in this case did the judge make regarding irreparable harm? The court found, based on the statements of Alan Gall in his, um, affidavit that Mr. Zingzheim was in dire circumstances and that the 
hospital had no other treatment. They were offering nothing else other than a ventilator for him. And because of that, the irreparable harm was found. And he did orally go through this with attorney Ralph Larigo. So piggybacking off that question by Justice Krofsky, what, what are the limits that you're, you're saying this was the inherent authority of the court to do this, right? Because there was no law cited. We've all agreed on that. So no law cited, inherent authority of the court. What are the limits on that? A court, could a court, <coughs> when presented with any situation under its inherent authority, issue an order? I mean, wh- where, where do we stop here if you're saying that that's the inherent authority of the court? Thank you for the question. It needs to be necessary. That is what the statute says. What statute? That would be statute 155. Okay, and I do want to get to 155. So 155, what is, you're saying, where in 155, which point 30, sub 1, is that where you're relying on? Right. Okay, where does it say there? (laughs) About anything about being necessary? Where does it say anything? I mean, it where does this give the authority at all for the court to act? This is unbelievable to me to to see this play out. You know, the as I said at the intro, I wanted you to take a look at those who live by the law die by the law. So what's going on here is these justices are asking about the law and it's it's the right to life. I mean, it's the the most basic of laws that you can have. Mass, uh, Pastor Matt Truella commented on, on this particular piece of the case, and he wrote this. Perhaps the trial judge understood transcendent rights and the law like right to life, like the right to have autonomy over your own body or the body of your child, and you decide what will or what will not go into your body or the body of your child, the right to not be kidnapped and held hostage by the doctors and administrators. Perhaps the trial court judge found those matters of more significance than the health statute cited by the hospital. And to that, I say, no kidding. Uh, Our own state constitution says this, we, the people of Wisconsin, grateful to Almighty God for our freedom in order to secure its blessings, form a more perfect government, ensure domestic tranquility, and promote the general welfare to establish this Constitution. Article 1, Declaration of Rights, Equality, Inherent Rights, Section 1, all people are born equally free and independent and have certain rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To secure these rights, governments are instituted, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So as I apply this to the world we live in today, the hospitals have literally become extensions of the government. And so they are, you know, of course, they're under the Constitution regardless, but these basic rights that are spelled out in our Constitution obviously apply to the government, and they also apply to the hospital. All right, so the second clip, I'm going to just briefly introduce this and then have Don play the second clip, and then we'll buzz right into the third one after I comment on the second one. So the question that I want you to look at as you're watching these next two clips is do judges have the responsibility to be in tune with the current state of affairs 
All right, Don, can you play the second clip, please? Perhaps to expedite this line of questioning, there is, in fact, a study that is Appendix B to the amicus filed by the Veterans Liberty Law Firm review of emerging evidence demonstrating the efficacy of ivermectin in the prophylaxis and treatment of COVID-19. Right, and I also, I don't know if it's part of what you gave us or what I read getting ready for this, but I have read articles that people were very, very concerned about COVID when it would hit Africa because they are generally poor and less access to health care. But actually, they've had a very low rate of COVID. Why? Because there's a lot of parasite infections and people are on ivermectin prophylactically for that problem, which is of concern in that country. And so they haven't had the problems with COVID. And in the article that I read, it was suggested that was another reason that we should look more carefully at using ivermectin. So what happened here is the the legalistic piece of the court got off on a rabbit trail on ivermectin, which isn't even part of the case. But you can see these two judges were were prepared. They had a sense of what's going on in the world today and, and really did a great job um, defending the use of ivermectin. All right, Don, play the next clip, please. You've got, you've got doctors here saying this was not in our standard of care. We will not give this medication because it is below the standard of care. We usually leave that decision up to a doctor. In this case, you're asking a court to step in and say, no, doctor, even though you're saying it's below the standard of care, we, court, have determined that it's necessary. How would we ever make these kinds of decisions when we rely on doctors with the training, the experience, the standard of care, all of the the Hippocratic oath that they take to deliver that standard of care, which they say ivermectin did not meet here? How would we make those distinctions as a court? So this really shows an example of a judge who has no idea that the Hippocratic Oath has been shredded. It's no longer being followed. And the standards of care are not individual standards of care between the doctor and the patient. They've been replaced by government protocols. Obviously, the circuit court judge became the lesser magistrate. I referenced that from Matt Truella's book, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate. These judges, and in a lot of cases, sheriffs, they have a responsibility to step in when a hospital, for example, in this instance, oversteps their bounds. So we're going to go to the fourth clip. I'm just say this as a brief introduction. And so the question I want you to think about as you're watching this clip is, who decides the standard of care? Go ahead, Don. Um, one other mischaracterization perhaps that we uh, might need to address because it came up in some of the amicus briefs is that um, it was the hospital, Aurora Summit, which made decisions or which declined to administer ivermectin in this case to Mr. Zingsheim. And that is uh, respectfully, I would say, not an accurate representation here. There are affidavits that have been placed in the records, particularly from Dr. Holmberg and Dr. Letzer, who were uh, members of the treatment team whose affidavits established that, in fact, they have personal knowledge of the treatment that was being rendered to Mr. Zingsheim. They had access to his records. They had spoken and worked with a a team of of specialists that comprised four different uh, teams of specialties that were providing care. They have uh, patient-specific information for him uh, that they are able to render. It was their decision, and they established through those affidavits. It was the doctor's decisions who were making the, the case 
nothing in the affidavits or any materials to indicate that the hospital had any type of treatment protocol that was governing or that was forcing the doctors to act in any specific way. Are you saying that the hospital then had not determined that the administration of ivermectin uh, was below the standard of care required in the hospital for the treatment of COVID-19? Your Honor, it is the position of the doctors, and one of the factors that they addressed... My question goes to the hospital, because that's what you're talking about. You said to us, the hospital didn't preclude this, and my question to you is, my reading of the record made me believe that the hospital decided that, that the provision of ivermectin was below the standard of care that the hospital had set. Now, I know physicians uh, are the ones that work with the board to set the standard of care for the hospital. So I just want to be sure, was this below the standard of care that the hospital required or not? No, the hospital did not require any particular standard of care. The standard of care is determined by the individual physicians. In fact, um, it'd be an unusual hospital have a standard of care. And for treatments that go on in the hospital, but Aurora doesn't have that, right? Well, Your Honor, the hospital does not actually practice medicine in other. I, I get that. I, you know, I'm married to a physician now for more than sixty right. years. If you can, so I know a little bit about what doctors do. Um, but they work in conjunction with the hospital, and I just want to be sure that I don't misunderstand. The hospital had no standard of care that the administration of ivermectin would have caused a problem with. That's correct, Your okay, Honor. Good. Thank right. you. Thank you. I mean, this is so unbelievable. The attorney for Aurora completely lied. And then what he did is he threw the doctors under the bus. And we should be expecting more of this as good cases proceed. Uh, what's interesting to me is that he says that the standard of care is individualized for each patient. Of course, that's the way it should be. But it's a complete joke given the protocol that they used on John. They use remdesivir and a ventilator, which have 75% and 90% kill rates, respectfully. And, or I should say, respectively. Anyway, the, the hospitals receive government bonuses if they follow those NIH protocols. So did the doctors receive the bonuses or did the hospital receive the bonuses? You know, obviously you can see that that uh, this is a lie and he was caught in the lie. Anyway, to close the 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 um, court case out, so remember the whole thing was only an hour for this hearing and attorney Karen Miller, what she did at the end was was really great. She asked the judges to clarify if the people of Wisconsin have the ability to ask for care when going to a hospital. Seems pretty basic. Again, Karen will be on deprogramming next week, and I wanted to give you a sense of the case beforehand. Thanks for watching.